My name is Kevin. If you're brand new to Spark, we are so delighted that you are here for this special event with Dr. Peter Enns. I think many of you already know who Pete Enns is. He's uh, an incredible author. Uh, he's launched the Bible for Nor Normal People as well as Faith for Normal People podcast. He's got um, some incredible degrees from Harvard, Westminster Theological Seminary, and um, many of us have been on this incredible, complicated spiritual journey ups and downs and all that kind of stuff, Bible, science, Jesus, God, history, and what is this era of transformation, deconstruction, um, oblivious confusion, uh, what does all of that mean for faith, spirituality, our identities, and the way of Jesus? And Pete Enns has been an incredible mentor and partner uh, with us along the way through his books and his uh, teachings and his public um, intellectualism. Um, so we're tremendously grateful that Pete uh, accepted our invitation to come back again and share with us uh, the most recent leg of his journey, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, based upon his book, uh, Curveball. So, for those of you who don't know the Bible for Normal People, it is playfully, whimsically uh, sarcastic, so I hope you're not offended when I say, would you all please give me a warm welcome in inviting and welcoming the only God-ordained and divinely inspired biblical scholar in the world, Dr. Pete Enns. I am grateful to be here. It's, it's, it was 10 years ago that I was here last, right? We were trying to figure that out. and. Um, in this space, it's pretty cool. You know, I really like it. I, I appreciate being here. Um, let's talk about. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk a little bit. I'm, I'm gonna talk. Let's face it. I'll talk a little bit, and then we'll have that dinner, and then we'll do a lot of talking together, which is actually my. I like that best. You know, I do love the sound of my own voice. I think everybody should hear me as much as possible, but I think it's more important to hear you and how you're processing life and faith, and that's sort of what this is about. Um, here, here's the gist, and this is not the most daring thought anyone has ever had in their life, but it was meaningful to me when I finally came to terms with this. My experiences actually affect how I think about God. That's about it. That's all I really want to say tonight. Um, and, and you think, like, it's almost like too obvious to even say, but I'm not sure if it is... Um, you know, I think we all have these experiences that, that challenge us, and I mean, I shouldn't speak for everybody. I'm really, I'm speaking for myself here, and if you can relate, that's great. You know, I'm not, I'm not imposing thinking on anybody here. I was invited to come, and I'm just very happy just to talk about how I'm processing reality here, right? But I think it is common, you know, teaching college students, having done this Christian thing for a few decades now, being a part of churches, having people confiding in me a lot, I think, it's, I, think I can say, I'm on pretty safe ground to say, that um, we do go through periods of challenging and, and, and having our faith unsettled. Who here has had their faith ever unsettled? Liars, the rest of you. <laughs> Liars. Anyway, um, but I think that this unsettling faith, um, it even gets to a point for some of us, again, a show of hands if you're brave, um, like, it's, it's, you don't really even recognize your faith anymore. Something happens, right? That just makes you, oh my goodness gracious, I didn't even think about that before. It can be anything. Um, 
Here's the thing about these experiences that we all have. I think, first of all, they're unavoidable. All you have to do is be paying attention. You ever watch TV? That's enough right there. Sometimes just, you know, watching a movie or something or watching a drama and being caught up in the experiences that other people have curated for us. And we think to ourselves, wow, just to live like that would be amazing. But my church would never go for that, right? It can be anything. And I will go so far as to say that not only are these experiences unavoidable, but I actually think they're good. <laughs> Having our, I don't say this lightly because nobody likes this. I don't like it either. But our, an unsettled faith is a good thing. I think God is in the presence of this unsettled faith because it keeps us from thinking we've got the God thing all figured out. That's really, to me, that's the bottom line. Like, I think God is always out ahead of us. Not behind us, but out ahead of us. So it's, it's unavoidable and it's good. And uh, again, no one likes having the routines upset. Who likes having the routines upset? Right? If I can't find my coffee in the same place every morning, I get upset, let alone how you think about ultimate reality and God and all that stuff, right? So no one likes to have the routines upset. But the thing is that I think for people of faith, I think we need to get used to that because we're talking about God once again. I, I believe that God is fundamentally mystery. God can be known, and God is known, but God is also deep mystery. We're talking about the creator of the multiverse, for heaven's sake, right? Don't clap. That's not that great. I mean, it's sort of scary, actually. I'm, it's, it's fine. Um, but, you know, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm out of my pay scale here to pontificate about God. I have to rely on my experiences to a certain extent. And again, I want to, just to connect with you a little bit, I don't know if some of you have been in church contexts where you've been told, don't ever trust your instincts. Who's heard that, right? Why should, okay, somebody tell me, why should you not trust your instincts? Because we're sinful, evil worms, and that's why you should never trust your instincts um, and your experiences and just your intuitions. <clears throat> I feel that if we lose those things, we're not really human anymore. And I think God can handle our experiences, our intuitions, and all that sort of stuff, right? And like I said, they're unavoidable, and I think they push us in certain directions to be open to seeing God differently than we might be used to. And that's not always a comfortable thing. So um, can I tell you a couple stories? I, I hate to ask this question, but I should. Okay, how many of you have read my book? Most of you haven't, which is very good, because I might talk about it. Who's bought it? That's much more important. So that's <laughs> pretty, pretty much the same people. Actually, that's fine. Um, I wrote that book, Curveball, right? So, um, and I called it Curveball because I, I, I start off with uh, talking about baseball. Who here likes baseball? Four of you, that's good. Okay, this is gonna go great. All right, anyway. Um, now, I played baseball my whole life and uh, through college and stuff like that. And uh, long story short, when I was, I, I never, all I wanted to do when I was a kid was play baseball. I was outside all 
the time. By myself, I would take a ball and hit it and run after it. Doesn't matter. I, love, I still love baseball. Um, I'm a Yankee fan. I need to get that out there. It's, I need to say that, and you can deal with that too, right? Maybe that's a big curveball for you. I don't know. But, but the thing is that I, I, that's all I ever wanted to do. And, you know, I was part of a church then as a teenager and as a college student where, you know, we, we were taught by good people. I mean, these, these are not bad people, but we were taught that um, if you live a good life, and if you pray hard enough, God will give you the desires of your heart. So that, well, that's easy. Uh, this is the desire of my heart. And, and, and it got to a point where I, I actually got to be pretty good. I wasn't great. I'm not, I'm not really professional material, but I had a pretty good fastball. It was like 89 to 91 miles an hour, which isn't too bad. You know, it's, it's not good enough, but it's not bad. But I had some scouts come during college when I was pitching, and I said, this is actually happening. I can't believe this is, I was so happy, I was just incredible. One week after my college season ended, and to this day I'm very thankful that I was able to complete my college uh, pitching career, uh, but I was practicing throwing a slider, which is a pitch that puts a lot of torque on your elbow, and it blew out. And so much for that plan, that ended it. You know, this was 1982, and there was nobody, you know, there was no surgeries or anything back then. And um, it took me a couple of years to grow into the vision of God that I was getting as a result of this curveball that was thrown at me. Uh, not a God who is um, there to make sure Pete's happy. Right. I think God cares about it. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, but I don't think God is there to um, make sure that we have what we want because Pete wants this really badly, so let's just give it to him, right? Um, I had to learn, and, and this through things that happened to me over the next couple of years, that I think God is more in tune with our suffering and walks with us. And that's a very different way of thinking about God. It doesn't seem like much now talking about it, but it did back then. I was traumatized for two years. How could God do this to me? Now, now I think back and say, grow up. Well, yeah, just, I mean, it's just a bad thing that happened. And so many people in this room have suffered much, 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 much more than I have. But I don't really feel like I have to rank pain at this point, because at that point, I was 21 years old. And this was a devastating moment for me. Um, Another example is um, when I was in graduate school, and uh, most people I found didn't think like I do at Harvard. And people have asked me, what's the hardest thing about going to graduate school? And, you know, you're a Christian, you're going to study Bible with a bunch of people who weren't Christians. And um, the hardest part for me wasn't what they were teaching me, although that had some challenges too. The hardest part for me was that they were really nice. Really nice. You know, I was warned before I went, I just don't let them teach you anything. <laughs> go get your degree and get out of there, right? I didn't listen to them at all. But anyway, you know, just go there and be, um, don't be too influenced, you know, because they're the enemy. And I wound up, they actually weren't. They babysat my kids. I hung out with them. I like them more than I like some Christians I knew, as a matter of fact, right? Not to judge, but I am, right? Um, so the thing is that, you know, and, and two of my professors 
who I dearly love and admire to this day, and they're still so, somewhat active, uh, James Kugel and John Levinson, two Jews who taught me more about the Bible than anybody had ever studied under in my whole life. And I began thinking to myself, hmm, I wonder what God thinks of them. Isn't that like a typically dumb Christian thing to say sometimes, right? What is God, okay, here's, the, are they going to hell? And I said, no, I don't think. They, and actually, that started me thinking long and hard about that whole business of hell and whether God exacts a pound of flesh for eternity because of where people happen to have been born. Right? But the thing is that it, it expanded my view of God to think, you know, maybe God is not just simply on my side because I can check off a few boxes because of where I was born. I had classmates that were Israeli. I mean, literally <laughs> Israeli. Like, I don't ex One guy, his, his brother died in, you in, in um, which is the Six-Day War? In the 60s? Somebody help me. I forget, I forget the history. Anyway, but I'm like, I mean, he suffered, you know? I'm like, well, it's too bad because God hates you. No, I'm not going to say that. You know, God loves you. Well, there are implications of saying that for people who don't share your faith system, right? And I was sort of, I mean, I, I was experiencing um, in, in graduate school, I think something of what, one of my favorite Bible stories is the story of Jonah. All heard of Jonah, right? The point is not, is the fish real? That is not the point, okay? And the answer is no. I think, actually, not, not to get onto this thing too long, but, um, you know, there are, t there are all these genre clues in the book of Jonah that makes you realize, okay, they're not telling a historical story here. It's a story. And one of them is that, that fish that swallows them, they go down to Sheol. Sheol's the abode of the dead. So probably didn't happen. Right, the fish, you go down to the water. You go deep enough, you'll be into the abode of the dead. Well, that doesn't really happen, but, but you know the story, right? Jonah is told by God to preach repentance to the Ninevites. Who are the Ninevites? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Who are the Assyrians? The ISIS of the day, who have done nothing but given Israel a big pain in their side for about 150 years. If you read the books of the prophets, the backdrop for many of the books of the prophets is this Assyrian dominance, which started about 850, and it went until 722 when they were exiled, until the Assyrians were decimated in 612. It was a two, over 200 years, longer than our country's been in existence almost. The Assyrians were dominating over the Israelites. And God says, go preach repentance to them. And Jonah, of course, says, uh, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? They might actually repent. We don't want that. And so he jumps, you know, in the boat, and he gets, maybe, he goes in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He goes towards Spain, they say. And the storm happens, you know, and um, Jonah says, yeah, it's, God's mad at me. Just, just throw me overboard. Yeah, I have to appreciate, when Jonah says, throw me overboard, he's saying, I want to die. I would rather die <laughs> than preach repentance to the Ninevites. And God, in the story, says, not so fast. <laughs> Here's a fish to swallow you. Think about it for a couple days. Come back out. He gets vomited out. And then he goes to Nineveh and preaches the shortest evangelistic sermon ever in the history of humanity. <laughs> Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. This walks away. 
And of course, they repent from king all the way down to cattle. Another suggestion, maybe this isn't a real story of, of something happened historically, right? But the, the point is that so I think the story of Jonah, this is how I interpret it. The story of Jonah is sort of an object lesson for the ancient Israelites that maybe God is on the side of people you have the least in common with. People you have, frankly, every reason to not like very much. That's sort of what happened to me in graduates. I had to start thinking through that myself. How big is this God anyway? And how small is my mind for trying to comprehend this? You know the thing that really drives me crazy is... Um, so many things drive me crazy. But the things that really drove me to think... Again, this is me. This may not be you. But what really drove me to say, I, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore when I talk about God... I'm sort of a science geek. I'm not a scientist. I don't do math. Right? I just, not me. Don't, I'm, don't, I might sound smarter than I actually am in a minute here, but, you know, thinking of things like evolution, Einstein's revolution, quantum physics. Who here understands quantum physics? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> do not raise... Unless you really do, I don't. I, I can't do the math. So anyway, it is math, isn't it, quantum physics? It's just, if you don't do math, you don't know it. In fact, if you know the math, you still don't know it from what I've heard. Sort of, yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? So anyway, but just thinking about things like, you know, evolution. Again, this is me talking. You don't have to agree with this. You should, but you don't have to, okay? Um, it's, it's not just that life evolved. It's the entire cosmos evolved in a sense. Not in a biological sense, but everything started small and blew up and became very, very big and complicated. The cosmos has evolved, our planet has evolved over four and a half billion years, and life has come from you know, these imperceptibly small things, and here we are. See, Evolution is what uh, one theologian, Ilya Delio, she's at uh, Villanova University, she says that evolution is the meta-narrative of our existence. She says evolution actually explains, in principle, everything there is. So what a lot of theologians have been talking about over a long time now, not just the past five minutes, but for a very long time, is how does any religious faith, and let's just stick with Christianity, how does Christianity get into conversation with evolution? And that made me think differently about God. You know, what is God up to? It's not just, you know, okay, how, how old is Christianity now? This is not a trick question, folks. Come on. <laughs> about 2,000 years old. Judaism throw another 1,500 years on top of that, right? Long time. Not really, though. Not in the cosmic scale, right? If I just, I, I got this idea from watching Neil deGrasse Tyson on the Cosmos series. You take the entire history of the cosmos and divide it into 12 months, right? And we're like the last millisecond on November, December 31st. Jesus was born on that scale four seconds ago. So, what's God been doing <laughs> all this time? And there were, I mean, Richard Rohr is a name some of you may know. I like Richard Rohr a lot. I've learned a lot from him. 
But, um, you know, God has always been intimate with creation since the very beginning. In fact, not to get weird here, but, um, well, get a little weird, but, you know, one thing we're learning from what some scientists that I've read have told us is that nothing is actually existing on its own. Things are in relation to each other, from subatomic particles to big systems. And maybe God is related to everything, too. Maybe that's just the way the universe is set up. Anyway, it makes me think differently about God. And, you know, I've come to the point, over, not recently, but over the years, where I've actually become, don't freak out, close, are these doors locked? You, you can't leave. I'm going to say something, I don't want to explain it. My view of God has become panentheistic. Okay, I'm not a pantheist, right? Know what a pantheist is, right? Everything is God, God is everything else. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God is in everything. And if we want to use words like energy, spirit, I just don't care because, again, these are metaphors we use to talk about something we don't possibly really understand. Scripture itself is full of metaphors for God because they couldn't grasp God either. Is God a shepherd? No. Is God a father? No. Is God a mountain? No. These are the metaphors that we use to talk about that which is beyond our words. I don't know about you guys, the older I get, the happier I get to hear that kind of stuff. Because it takes the pressure off of having to get God right all the time. Now we can focus on getting on with living <laughs> in a certain way based on what we say we believe. Um, Einstein, I mean, I'm not going to get into all this science stuff. I just, I like talking about it because I, I, I just, I just, it, it, I don't know, it just makes me happy. It makes me happy to know how big this universe, it makes me happy to know I don't comprehend it. Space and time are not constant. They change, they bend, they do something because of mass or because of speed. Whatever. <laughs> you know, time, I mean, you know, you know this, right? If you, people who are on the earth with their feet on the ground, but people on a mountain, the people on the mountain age more quickly by billions of nanoseconds, but they do. It's been shown, demonstrated, scientifically proven, right? The further you are from the earth's surface, the faster the time goes. Technically, your head ages faster than your feet. <laughs> Think about that, okay? Um, I just find that amazing, you know? And again, I've dabbled in quantum physics trying to understand, I've been trying to understand even the dumbed-down version of the dumbed-down version, because it's difficult. And I've talked with scientists about it, they help me understand some things about quantum physics, but just, you know, what is matter? It's not the most obvious question. How small do things get? I don't know. Light, is it a particle or is it a wave? Yes. Depends on whether you're looking at it or not. Weird stuff happens out there. You know, you can have two, you know, uh, photons entangled and they react instantly. I mean, it's, again, it's complicated. It has to do with spin and other kinds of things like that. But they, 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 they are tied together. So as one goes, the other goes. So what? 
it doesn't matter how far apart they are. And this is not just theoretical anymore. This is, again, mathematically and through scientific experiments has been sort of demonstrated. The point is that you can have these entangled particles on one end of the galaxy, on the other end of the galaxy, and they react instantaneously the same way, which means they can't be communicating with each other because nothing goes faster than the speed of light. So what the heck is going on? That's the question. Right? Now, people have done some thinking about this. I'm not saying it's a total mystery, but it's sort of a mystery. We live in a universe where ultra-small things have their own rules. They have their own math. We live in a universe that is weird, very difficult to understand. And here, here's, my, here's where the science has taken me. We need a way of talking about the Creator that matches the creation itself. So if we say things, and again, this is all metaphorical, and I say it too, but I try to catch myself. If we say things like, God is up there looking down, a very natural thing to say, because you know, it's pretty big up there when you look up, right? But you know, there is no up, right? There is no up. And where would this God be, actually? Hiding is in, in, behind a star, just like right above the earth? Is it like in another? That's why I've become a panentheist, because I have to believe that God's Spirit is everywhere, permeating all of us, that chair, this moleskin that I'm reading off of, even you. <laughs> Kevin. Right? I mean, right, I, I think this, to me, that's exciting. I, I've had my view of God expanded because of the curveball of science. So the question is, you know, what is uh, your experience, right? What sort of experiences have you had? And maybe we can talk about those later, but what kind of experiences have you had that have made you think differently about that which you were taught you should never change your mind on? God. I know the big one now um, is, you know, COVID, not, not to beat a dead horse. By the way, this is only like the second or third time I've been out speaking since COVID started, right? Um, February of 2020, I was three weekends in a row in like different time zones. I was exhausted. I, got, I came home from that at the end of February and I just said, oh Lord, I'm tired. I just need a break. Next week, our students told, were told, don't come back, <laughs> stay home. Power of prayer, folks. I think it works. You know, um, anyway, not to joke because, you know, many people lost their lives over this and our lives were, dis all of our lives were disruptive in some sense, you know, uh, isolation from family and friends. I know people who couldn't visit their grandkids for a year and a half or two years even, couldn't get there, right? Um... Students, I mean, I had students who, like, stunned, you know? I mean, athletes, or just people who want, to, who want to finish out their college career, and they can't even say goodbye to their friends because they were told not to come back while they were home, right? And that's not being mean, they just, that's what we had to do, right? Um, teaching, oh gosh. I hated teaching in COVID. I hate teaching on Zoom. 
No offense to Zoom, wherever you are. Hi. Um, I could, I could, and the thing, here's the thing about this. First of all, the students were all either depressed or anxious, right? And they're wearing masks. And the worst thing is, I can't tell if my jokes are landing. <laughs> if I can't tell that, I don't know what to do in front of students. So anyway, it was, it was a little bit traumatic for me too. But, but even like church, but I'm sure things had to happen here, right, and, you know, over COVID. But it, what many churches are thinking of now, and I think rightly so, is people are used to not coming back. I don't mind telling you, I didn't go to church for over a year. I sort of liked it. I'm not saying I try to be funny or cute or anything. I just, I needed a break from my routine of being, a place, being in a place where I felt I had to be. But how do you do this church thing when, you know, the, the Christian faith is looking different than it was before? I think COVID was a big deal, and it still is, right? Now, here's the thing. We are not the first people on the face of the earth uh, to be challenged in our faith. It's been happening long. In fact, I will, I'll be bold and say this. The entire history of the ancient Israelites, which has been recorded for us in Scripture, and, and then Judaism after that, and Christianity, that whole history, those histories are all about people adjusting to curveballs. Jonah is one example of that. Jonah is adjusting to the curveball. What was his curveball? I won't go into all the detail. His curveball was probably the Babylonian exile. When he lived with people, whoever wrote this book, right? When he lived with people and he found out they're not so bad. Kids start playing together. You know, you know the drill, right? It's like they're different, but okay, we're captive. I guess we have to. And like, honey, they're having a they invented beer like 2,000 years ago, and we didn't even know it was around. So it's really they want us to come over for a barbecue, right? So you get to know the people, right? That's part of the biblical experience. You know, just, can I give you one more quick example from the Bible? Because to me, this illustrates so much. You have a slave law in Exodus. Whether Israelites can have Hebrew slaves, whether they can have their own people enslaved, Exodus says, well, yeah. Uh, the male, however, can go free if he wishes to after seven years, but not the women. Move to Deuteronomy, and twice it says, Deuteronomy chapter 15, twice it says, male and female slave may go free after seven years if they choose. That's interesting. Did God change his mind? No, I think people were thinking. <laughs> people were maybe even, I really want to be careful how I put this, maybe they were maturing, becoming more aware of things. And they understood God differently. And Leviticus, what does Leviticus say about keeping Hebrew slaves? It says, don't do it at all, ever. Don't you remember you were slaves in Egypt? So in, in Torah, no less, people write books about this stuff. I'm not just making this up, folks. There are three slave laws, and they differ. Why do they differ? Because they're written at different times by different people under different circumstances. And they're perceiving God differently. See, God's out ahead of us. God is even out ahead of the biblical writers. 
And by the way, I love the Bible. I really, and that's one reason why. <laughs> you know, I see what they're doing, and I'm saying to myself, this connects with my reality somewhat. Okay, one last thing. Um, and to me, this summarizes the whole thing. I probably should have started with this and just sat down. But this summarizes the whole thing. And I tell this story in, in that book up there um, of uh, Robert Portman, Bob Portman, who was a senator in Ohio, a Republican senator, a very conservative senator. And he had opposed, as a congressman and then as a senator, he had opposed same-sex marriage, which is understandable, right? Um, until his son came out to him, and then he had to figure some stuff out. And actually, I have, um, I think I have it here. All right. I'm going to read uh, his little press release here. So this is 2013. He had to think about it for a couple of years. This, is, this was a big deal, not like a weekend. He had to really think about this, right? He says, I have come to believe, I like that, I have come to believe, I haven't always believed this, I've come to believe, that if two people are prepared to make a lifetime commitment to, uh, to love and care for each other in good times and in bad, the government shouldn't deny them the opportunity to get married. That isn't how I've always felt. As a congressman and more recently as a senator, I oppose marriage for same-sex couples. Then something happened. I love that phrase, something happened. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> Some, life happens, right? Something happened um, that led me to think through my position in a much deeper way, he says. And what strikes me here is that he didn't just, and he goes on to talk about what he thinks about people who are committed to each other, all this kind of stuff, and it's you know a big change from before. But what strikes me is that his... Um, it's not just his view of human sexuality that changed. His view of God changed. And he basically, I mean, elsewhere he says, he basically came down to this. If God is love, how do I respond to my son? It gets really simple sometimes, right? But it's, it's not just his view on human sexuality changed, his view on God changed. What God was opposed to two years earlier, God is no longer opposed to in his opinion. That pretty much sums it up, right? Our experiences invariably intrude on our comfortable systems of theology where everything works out until you start talking to people. And then it gets more difficult. Um, Richard Rohr, I'll, I will end with this. I keep saying I'll end, but I'm, I mean it this time. I, I like Richard Rohr, and I, I heard him say once, and this has been very, very meaningful to me. He says that, and this is the really big picture here, folks. For me, this is the really big picture. He says, you know, all of life has challenges. And the key is to let go. Not to try to manage it, not to try to control it. It's to let go. Letting go of our theologies. I think Jesus called that dying to ourselves. And if you let go, you learn to let go. Here's the payoff. When the big letting go comes, 
you're going to be ready for it because you've been doing it your whole life. That's very, very meaningful to me. Life is sort of practice. <laughs> right? If not holding on too tightly to things that we believe sometimes. Having conviction. I have tons of conviction. I'm just not sure about a lot of things too. And for a left-brain German, that's not always the easiest lesson to learn. Um, how do we end this thing here, Pastor? I'm done now. I'm done <laughs> talking. Can I sit down? Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay.